Thanks, fellas. Jay Alcoholic. And uh, so there's some new guys here, and, you know, if I say I haven't had anything to drink since the second day of May in 1979, you look at me and go, dude, how pathetic is your life? Obviously, drinking didn't mean anything to you. And uh, so I want you to take a look. This is a picture of me when it was still working in 1977, uh, blacked out in the morning. Uh, so just so you qualify, I really did drink abused, okay? So I, we like to call this kitchen table AA. And the reason is, is that we believe the heart and soul of Alcoholics Anonymous happens with one alcoholic talking to another across the, uh, across the kitchen table. And what I'm going to share with you this morning is kind of the hi historical legacy of this thing that we call sponsorship. Now, uh, Bill Wilson said that if he was going to tell the story of Alcoholics Anonymous, that he, where he could start with was Noah. Um, but we don't have that much time, so we're going to start a little closer to us. And uh, this is a picture of Bill and his uh, uh, sponsor, Ebby. And he said that, uh, he says in here that Ebby, he came to the hospital bringing me a copy of book, a book by William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. He said, this book gave me the realization that most conversion experiences, whatever their variety, do have a common denominator of ego collapse at depth. Okay? Now, I'm going to be using some words in this history talk that have all kinds of weird connotations to it, okay? So just realize that it's medieval language. When we're talking about conversion, I'm not talking about putting your hands on the television set, okay? Well, what, it, what it is that I'm talking about is a change that happens to people. And uh, this is the book uh, was written in 1902 by this guy, William James, who was an American, who was describing the different types of spiritual experiences that people had and how it is that they had them. And this word conversion, what it means in this book is the process, either gradual or sudden, by which a self, which beforehand is divided and consciously wrong, inferior and unhappy, becomes unified, consciously right, superior, and happy. I think this happens in just about every AA meeting there is. We come in feeling separate, different, alone, and then we find out that we're part of something bigger, part of something different. And so what we're talking about then is conversion is a process of becoming whole. And don't hold any specific religion's tenet on it when I say that word conversion. Okay? Whoop. And uh, in it, James talks about who are the people that are available for this experience. And it's these people that are wrong living that they have impotent aspirations. They're self-loathing, self-despairing. They have an unintelligible and intolerable burden to which they are mysteriously heir. In other words, like for me, I couldn't stop drinking. 
I couldn't stop using. I couldn't stop lying. I couldn't stop spending the rent money <laughs> or the food money or the milk money. How did I get here? How did I get here? And I was, I, I, I was lost. So this is where I like to start uh, the history talk, is this guy by the name of Frank Buchmann. Frank Buchmann was a Lutheran minister. Uh, he was American. He was born in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, he had an experience where he was running a, a, a hospice, a hostel for young men in the slums of Philadelphia, bringing them in kind of like halfway houses, bringing them, give them a place to, uh, to clean up, have something to eat, a little Bible study. And uh, he poured his soul into it, and it got very, very successful. It got so successful that the guys were eating more than the parish was willing to, uh, willing to pay for. And so they said, hey, you've got to cut back on what you're giving the kids to eat. And he said, no, you can't do that. It's the food that gets them in the door. <laughs> you know, you've got to talk to people where they are. And uh, so he quit. And he had just a little bit of resentment, and it burned him for a long time. And uh, it got to the point where, uh, uh, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd forget about it for a little while, but it, it just was eating him up and eating him up. And he ended up in this place in, uh, in Keswick, England, and he was listening to this woman talk. And as he was listening to her talk, he had this, he was looking at this cross, and it, he had this image of it collapsing into an eye. And he goes, oh my gosh, I'm the wrong guy in here too. It's not just them. I got a part in this. And after he had that little vision, he went back and he wrote letters of apologies. He wrote amends letters to these people that he hated, saying, I've held ill will against you. Will you please forgive me? And when he did that, it vanished. And he went, wow, this is really cool. And what happened over the next few weeks is that when he started talking to people about having a spiritual experience, they were able to hear him. In other words, what he found was is that he had to be clear himself in order to carry a message of depth and weight. And uh, so anyway, this is the guy that, that I kind of call the uber sponsor of... of uh, and this is him in uh, China, and he was over in China, and he was talking uh, to groups, and, and he got out, and he was talking to different groups of missionaries about the thing that you can have all the book knowledge in the world, but if you're not clean inside yourself, so he was going around talking about doing inventory and, and making amends and then looking for guidance on how to live your life. And uh, the other thing that he talked about was that there were four standards. They called them the four absolutes back in the day. And that if you had any difficulty in your life, that all you had to do was figure out, run it by these four things. Is it honest? Is it pure? Is it unselfish? And is it loving? And if it doesn't match up to it, you know, oh, okay, well, I'm not supposed to do that. Kind of simple. But, uh, but for people like me, you know, I didn't have any ways, any, any compass to work. And so this was the compass that they taught. And the, all the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous were members of this thing called the Oxford Group. 
1932, there was a great book called, I, I think it's a great book, <laughs> great title at least, called I Was a Pagan by a guy by the name of Vic Kitchen. And he talks about uh, that the Oxford group had a power I did not have. They said, however, that I could have it, uh, just as they did, if I would pay the same price, comply with the same conditions, and go through the same series of exceedingly simple steps. Steps! Boy, that's AA. They stole... Oh, it was before AA was started. So what I'm trying to say is, is that we're part of a lineage of folks that have been working steps. But we found ones that worked specifically for weirdos like us. So what were the Oxford Group steps? Well, they had four of them. They only had four steps. Uh, the first one was that what, what we would call doing a fourth and fifth step. They called it sharing, and it was the sharing of our sins and temptations with another Christian life given to God and using sharing as witness to help others still unchanged to recognize and acknowledge their sins. So in other words, the way that they do it is a little different than what, the, what we in AA would do, but they would sit down and say, I know Bill, and uh, I know that Bill's got trouble at home, and he's drinking too much, and his wife has a lot of adjectives that she's using about him, and uh, <laughs> she doesn't understand, yeah. And, and so what I do is I say, hey, Bill, let's get together, and, you know, and, I, and I sit down, and, and what I do is I talk about what I used to be like, and that I couldn't stop drinking, and that she didn't understand, and how unfair it all is. Let him know that I've been there, and then hopefully he'd say, wow, and you're not like this anymore? I'd say, yeah, I'm not like this anymore. And so that'd be the way that they'd, they'd do it. So in other words, the, the sponsor would actually kind of lead off and talk about what their problems were. And hopefully, if maybe not in that conversation, but in some conversation along the line, you'd go, oh, yeah, that's me. Cause, so the first thing is this identification at death. And they called it sharing. The second would be what we call our, th our third step, the surrender of our lives, past, present, and future into God's keeping and direction. So you go, I'm a mess, I need help. Help me, please. The third step in the Oxford group was restitution to all whom we have wronged, directly or indirectly. <coughs> what an order, I can't go through with it. <laughs> but the idea is that we got to make amends. we got to make amends. And then the fourth is listening to, accepting, and relying on God's guidance and carrying it out in everything we do or say, uh, great or small. Which, if you want to know about the way that the Oxford Group got guidance, all you got to do is look at our 11th step in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So this is just to let you know that, that, that this thing has been being sifted and tuned and, and, and like along the, the, the years. Here's a third step prayer. I like it better than the one in the big book. Oh, my God, how can you stay sober saying that? But I think this is a really cool one. He says, I surrender thee my entire life, O God. I've made a mess of it, trying to run it myself. You take it, the whole thing, and run it for me according to your will and plan. This guy, Vic Kitchen, that wrote this book, was sober in the Oxford group meetings that Bill Wilson came into when he got out of the, 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 the hospital that he was in, Vic uh, 
had a seizure while making a sales presentation. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really big deal, and he was trying to not drink so he could do a good job. He had a seizure in front of the guy, and that was kind of what led him to the Oxford group. That, and he kept having delirium tremens all the time. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's just nice to know that this is a guy by the name of Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was Bill Wilson's spiritual advisor. When Bill got sober, he went to these meetings that his sponsor was going to at this church that, that, that Sam was, uh, was at uh, the Calvary Church in, in New York. Now, this is Sam on conversion. And remember, when I'm talking about conversion, for our purposes, we're talking about, you know, sobriety about this, this change of mind, this, this thing of becoming whole. He said, uh, a lot of religious people are like a crowd sitting in a railway station thinking that they're traveling. They hear the names of the trains and the stations. There's the smell of luggage. There's the stir of travel. But they never get on the train. Conversion is where you get on the train. Okay? You know, it's... Conversion for us is when you stop drinking, <laughs> you know, and come along. Let's see. This is, uh, this is Sam on working the steps. And in the Oxford group and, and in early Alcoholics Anonymous, they used to talk about a lot about, because they wanted to seem scientific, is that it's about making an experiment. We don't care. You don't have to believe anything except that something's happened to us. And just to try it. All we're asking is you just make an honest effort and try it and see what happens. And, and he said that a moral experiment, in other words, working the steps, is worth ten times an intellectual investigation into apprehending spiritual truth. Obedience is as much the organ of spiritual understanding as reasons. It's like I got to go through the process and see what happens instead of trying to figure it out. You know, how many folks do you walk across and they say, uh, "Well, I'm stuck on the third step." Really? Well, I have to figure out what God is and be able to communicate it to you before I can go on in the steps. No, that's not it. I mean, we got like really smart, brilliant people for centuries that have been trying to do that, and you think that because you're withdrawing from alcohol, you have to do it before you can start working the steps? Nah, nah. So in other words, it's an experiment. Just do it and see what happens. That's all we're asking you to do. Just try it. Now, this guy is Carl Jung, and Carl Jung was uh, a brilliant uh, psychologist, and uh, he helped the guy that sponsored... Ebby, who was Roland, sponsor, uh, who sponsored Bill. So, I mean, this is, this is a guy that's really uh, significant in Alcoholics Anonymous history. And uh, there's a, a correspondence that Bill and Carl Jung had that's one of my favorite pieces of AA literature. It's in a book called The Language of the Heart. Uh, we've got it in our, in our conference appears. But anyway, he's talking about this drunk. And, and he said that... Uh, his craving for alcohol was equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness. In other words, in medieval language, the union with God. But, you know, he's looking at this guy and he's going, 
This guy's feeling separate, different, and alone. And alcohol makes him feel whole. And that all of us have that desire for wholeness. And if you were speaking about it in an evil language, you'd call it union with God. In fact, uh, one of the fun things that uh, that 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 you says in in the thing is so. If you were to take, it's interesting that that in the Latin language, you use the same word for the highest religious experience that you do for alcohol. It's spiritus. And so that the way to the way that you combat the spirits is with the spirit. Bill, in his letter to uh, to Doctor Jung, thanking him for getting the ball rolling with this guy Roland, said, "So to you, Doctor Shoemaker of the Oxford Groups, to William James, and to my own physician, Doctor Silkworth." who's the guy who wrote the doctor's opinion in the beginning of the book, we of AA owe this tremendous benefaction. As you will now clearly see, this astonishing chain of events actually started long ago in your consulting room. This was Bill Wilson writing to Carl Jung, thanking him for his contribution to AA. And then the thing that was prior was Jung's response, a, a letter back to Bill. So this whole thing about, okay, now where does this, what is this chain of events? How did, how did it work? How was it passed on? Well, here's Frank Bookman. Bookman has this experience that I described to you about uh, hating these people and then writing these letters of apology and f suddenly feeling a wholeness in his being. And then finding that when he spoke to other people, that if they did that thing, if they looked inside of themselves. So he's in China, and he's given this talk. And this guy, Sam Shoemaker, who was a young priest at the time, who was there doing some stuff, uh, here's, Sam, uh, here's Frank talk, and he goes up and he says, Hey, what you're talking about is really cool. Could you come to my Bible study class and, and, and talk to these guys about it? Because I know that if they heard you they get fired up. And Frank looks at him and he goes, what's wrong with you that you don't have the power to carry this message? What's, what's up with you? Sam gets a little pissed off. <laughs> and he goes home that night and he thinks about his life and he goes, you know, in reality I've been out doing a good job, but what I've basically been doing deep down inside is that I've been a fraud for God. He said, I was playing like I was, I was really throwing all the cards, and I wasn't. I was keeping some for me. And he said, okay, so I'm, I'm willing to get in the whole way. And so he goes, and he goes through those quick steps with, uh, with Frank, and he has an experience, and he becomes very active and, and, and dynamic in sharing this message with others. So then Sam goes along, and he runs uh, through a set of circumstances. He runs across this guy, Bud Firestone. Bud's family was uh, Firestone Rubber Company, had all the money in the world. Bud's a good-looking guy, um, has a hammer of a wife. Uh, everything should be fine, except he's one of these guys that when he starts to drink, everything goes sideways. And... Uh, Things are not good, and they've sent him everywhere, and he's not able to do much of anything. 
Um, they, they, they're, they're trying to get him, get him sober, and he can't stay sober. And, uh, but anyway, he runs across Sam Shoemaker through, uh, through a few friends, and, uh, and he and Sam get together, and Sam is able to tell him, hey, look, it's not what you believe, it's what you do. This is what happened to me. Bud goes along with it. He tells him about the problems that he's had. He makes the surrender, and his drinking obsession leaves him. And the family's thrilled. The family's thrilled. And uh, they're so elated that, uh, that later on, they have a very big effect in alcoholics. And you want to see the Firestones are from Akron, Ohio. And that's where it is that, that Bill ends up coming to. This is Roland Hazard. Roland, uh, Roland meets with Carl Jung. Jung and Hazard have this thing where, where Hazard's working with him over a year's time. Um, Jung thinks that he's, he's pretty much got him where he wants him. He doesn't know that he's alcoholic. He thinks he's a manic depressive, that he's got these problems. He says, okay, good, you can go home. You know, glad to see you. He leaves Geneva. He's on a train home. He stops in Paris. Somebody asked Roland the wrong question. I believe it was, would you like some wine with your dinner? He says yes, and he's off on a running run. And he can't understand it. He thought he was cured. He goes back to the doctor. He says, hey, it didn't work. What do I got to do now? And the doctor looks at him. He says, dude, I didn't realize you're alcoholic. Uh, I can't help people like that. In fact, nobody can. And, and this guy goes, nobody? He says, I got all the money in the world. Come on. You gotta be, there's got to be some place. And he goes, no, there isn't any, I don't know anybody that, that, that can help people like you. In fact, the only thing that happens is that occasionally here or there, people get involved with some kind of a spiritual movement and they have an experience and their drinking career or their drinking uh, obsession leaves. He said, so... Uh, Put yourself as close as you can to some spiritual movement, and maybe it's, it's about as likely as you getting hit by lightning. But maybe lightning will strike you, so give it a shot. And so Roland comes back to New York, and it just so happens that the church that his family was involved in with New York was Sam Shoemaker's church. And so he starts drinking and going to meetings. <laughs> and then one day... He's reading Vic Kitchen's book on a train, and he goes, and Vic, and it talks about his alcoholism and his drug use, and, uh, and he goes, oh, I got that, and it stops. And he does the steps, and he gets, he gets involved, and he starts helping others. Because that was the big thing in the Oxford group is, is that you can't keep it unless you give it away. It doesn't, it's not something that just stops. And that's what we found in Alcoholics Anonymous, too, is, and that's why Bill and Matthew and I are here, is that this is not something that you just get and go home with. It's all we are is we're just a conduit. And as long as we keep it flowing through us, it works. So Roland comes back and he starts getting involved with others, and um, there was a guy that he knew by the name of Ebby. And Ebby had had a little bit of a problem. He'd uh, crashed his parents' new car into a house and... Gotten out of the gotten out of the car and the family was having dinner, and uh, and he crashed into the kitchen and he got out, 
And he said, I'd like a cup of coffee, please. And the, the family said that they sued him not for not so much for what he did to the house, but it was in his impertinence that really pissed him off. <laughs> it was his attitude. And uh, anyway, uh, and Ebby uh, ends up going. Uh, he's he's uh, a couple weeks later, as a result of this and some other things, he's uh, to be locked up in the state asylum for being a chronic inebriate. They had kind of the three strikes law back in those days too, where you know, if, if you get caught three times, we're going to put you away for a year. That's what they used to do with alcoholics and drug addicts. They just, no recovery. We're just going to put you in a, put you in a cage for a while and see what happens when you get out. Um, anyway, so Abby's about to, uh, about to uh, get sentenced for a year. But it just so happens that another one of these Oxford group guys was the judge's son. And Roland and, and, and Sebra come and they say, hey, give him to us. They say the magic words, we'll take him to New York, get him out of state, right? And, and we'll take him to New York and we'll show him what we got. Because you know, Judge, you remember how bad drinkers we were. And we're not doing that anymore. He said, great, take him. So Ebby comes to New York and he starts... Uh, he starts uh, doing this Oxford group work, and he's about six weeks sober, and they're saying, you've got to go work with others. You've got to go work with others. And he'd been down on Wall Street, and he'd heard that there was one of his old buddies, Bill Wilson, who was having a really tough time. And so he goes to his sponsor and says, what about, uh, I've got guidance that I'm supposed to go see Bill Wilson. Roland says, go get him. So he makes the call, and that's the story that's in our big book about my friend sat there while I'm drinking my pineapple juice and gin, and I don't think there was a crack pipe in the bathroom, but I'm sure there would have been if that would have been that, you know. But, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Abby, uh, Abby and Bill are, uh, uh, are sitting <laughs> That's a nice image, isn't it? There's a meditation for you, Bill on crack. <laughs> But, but in, the, in his story, he talks about, you know, high-powered sedatives, you know, so you can see him just laid out there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so Bill's sitting there, and Ebby comes by, and he visits him. And, he's, and, uh, and Bill's saying, well, what's the deal? And Ebby says, I've got religion, and Bill just wants to throw him out of the house. He goes, you know, don't give me that. I'm a scientific guy. I'm smart. Don't give me this God crap. It's, you know, and... Uh, but Abby says, well, you know, we're not talk I'm not talking about any variety. I'm not talking about any brand. Just pick whatever would work for you. And that's what the Oxford group talked about. It, it, you know, they happen to be a Christian movement, but they said, you know, pick where, start wherever you're at and see where you end up. But you've got you to gotta try. You've got you to gotta get on the train. And Bill ends up, you know, coming to, coming to Towns Hospital and... And and uh, Abby comes by and takes him through the first eight steps, and Bill leaves. Abby has or, or Abby leaves, and Bill has this tremendous white light experience. And uh, and from that, you know, this message. And he gets out of the Oxford group, and he starts. Or I mean, out of the hospital, he starts going to these Oxford group meetings, and he's looking for drunks. Because in the experience that he had, it was one drunk talking to another, and so he's looking for alcoholics. And 
I actually talked with people that went to Oxford group meetings with him, and they said, yeah, he was weird. He'd come early for, to the meeting, and he'd say, are there any drunks that come to this group? Now, the Oxford group was not focused on alcoholics. They'd say, well, we got people with problems. And, and, he'd say, and they said, uh, you know, I don't know if there's people with alcohol problems. Bill would always go, if they're drunks, give them to me. I can help them. And he really thought at one point, he actually said when he was given, Bill said when he was given an Oxford group pitch once, that he was going to be able to sober up all the drunks in the world. <laughs> So anyway, here this is, here's this message, here's a guy who had a drinking problem, was powerless over alcohol, unable to, to do anything in his life, runs across a guy that had the same problem, that isn't living like that anymore, that had done some simple steps, you know, and really simple steps, you know, sharing what the problem was, asking for help from a power greater than themselves, going out and cleaning stuff up, and then asking for direction and helping others. You know, and, and, what, and the problem's lifted. So Bill's running around doing this stuff, and what happens? He, gets, he ends up in Akron. He'd been to Akron before, hadn't had any problems when he was there, but now he's in Akron and there's problems, and he makes a call. And he ends up getting a hold of this guy, Dr. Bob, who ends up being the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Bob, and, and the date that we call our birthday, isn't the date that Bill Wilson gets sober. It isn't the date that Bill and Bob meet. Because they met, and Bob stopped drinking for a little while, and then he had a really good idea to go to Atlanta. And you guys all know what happens when you go to Atlanta, right? Yeah. Of course you get toasted. And, uh, and, and he ends up uh, coming back home, and he's, and he's completely a mess. And Bill helps him through a day. Uh, through a couple of days, I think it was, it was over the weekend. He, Dr. Bob had a surgery to do on... on uh, on Monday, and so they uh, they they gave him uh, sauerkraut and stewed tomatoes. You talk about abuse, you know, and uh, try and help him sober up. And then on the way to the hospital, Bill gives him another couple bottles of beer and a goofball, so that he can do his surgery. Doctor Bob was a proctologist. Okay. And there are those who say that the person who gave the most for Alcoholics Anonymous was the guy who had the operation on his ass that morning. <laughs> but anyway, so Bob has a, has a goofball and a couple bottles of beer. He's about to go into the hospital, and he turns to his sponsor, he turns to Bill, and he says, I'm going to go through with it. And he goes into the, goes into the operating room, and Bill goes back to the house, and he's sitting there waiting with uh, Ann, Bob's wife, and he doesn't come home. And you know what that means. He's out on a run again. And, uh, and he doesn't come home till late at night. And, and, they're, and, and when he does come home, you know, they're, they're, they're worried. They're, they're emotional. And what's, where you been? And he said, I've been out mending fences. 
See, the thing that Bob would not do was he wouldn't do the restitution stuff because he thought it was going to hurt his business, being a doctor. But what he did when he got out of the hospital, out of working on that guy that day, is he went around and he started making amends. And that's the day that we count as the start of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's not the day that he stopped drinking, it's the day that he started to make restitution. So the day that he started to do stuff, not just sit around and agree with it. And Bob uh, ends up, because he's a doctor, working at St. Thomas Hospital and getting drunks to roll through there. And, uh, and he worked with, like, thousands and thousands of alcoholics, sponsoring them, getting them through this just real simple stuff. And then here's Bill and... Uh, and uh, Marty, uh, Marty Mann, and, and if you haven't read it, there's a wonderful new biography about this woman, and uh, she's one of the great stories uh, in, uh, in uh, NAA. Her, uh, her story in the big book is Women Suffer Too, and uh, she was one of these gals, I'm, I'm sure you guys have all run across women like this that can drink you under the table. <laughs> she was a real allergic type, came from a lot of money, had a lot of great stuff uh, going for her, and then the stock market took all that away, and she was a hopeless chronic alcoholic. She reached the point, she'd been a high society woman, where she is actually being taken in as a charity case in, a, uh, in an insane asylum. And the guy who was working with her was a high-end was a high-end uh, uh, high uh, sanitarium, and the guy who was working with her was a guy by the name of Harry Tebow. And uh, Dr. Tebow was... Uh, was working with her, and uh, he got sick one day, and so he wasn't able to do his normal practice, so he started going through his mail. And in his mail was a copy of the big book, this multi-lift thing that they were sending out for people to check out. And he read it, and he goes, I know somebody like this, and he gave it to Marty. And uh, Marty starts reading the book, and she, oh my God, there are other people like me. Because that's what that book does, you know, is it, is it, oh, the, the, powerless, I got that. She's reading more about, then she gets to the God stuff and she goes, oh, not that, throws it away. And uh, a couple days later she gets ticked at one of the other workers there at the, at the sanitarium and she says, uh, I'll just go drink at him. And then she remembered that when she was reading more about alcoholism, it talks about going out and deliberately drinking at people. And when she remembers that, she has this tremendous experience, kind of like Bill's, one of these white light experiences. And uh, she doesn't know what to do, because the last time she had an experience like that, she'd taken a step out of a hotel room. She thought she could fly. <laughs> so she runs to the, to the doctor, and she says, you know, am I insane? Same thing Bill did with, with Shoemaker, and Tebow says, oh, no, 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 no. I've read about that stuff in William James's book. Lots of people have had it. She said, you go back and read that book. And so she goes back and keeps reading the book. A couple days later, ends up at her first AA meeting, when AA was just like 10 or 12 people meeting in New York, and, uh, and she ends up quitting drinking. And this is the woman that started the National Council on Alcoholism that, that, that was involved with uh, Bill's parents and what they called the Big 12-step that really helped fundamentally change the way that medicine, 
and that the legal system looks at the disease of alcoholism. I mean, this woman did incredible, incredible work so that you and I can be here and not be locked up and, and, and having the things happen to us that, that, not that we all haven't been locked up and needed to be locked up, but that's another story. Uh, no, thanks. So let's do a little meditation, if we will. I'd like you guys, if you would, just close your eyes for a minute. And let's just, let's just spend a little time and, and think about what it is that, uh, that happened to you. Okay? So let's take a deep breath. And... Uh, Why don't we go back to that first place that you went to an AA meeting at? What kind of a hall was it? How were the chairs set up? What was on the walls? What did it smell like? And in your mind's eye, go around the room. And think of the people that were there. And how did they greet you? And how did they treat you? Think about your, your sponsor. And their friends. And their families. that you got together with that person, what they taught you.
And then think about the folks that you have tried to pass this message on to. Now, as I mentioned to you last night, um, <clears throat> Sam Shoemaker used to always say that you have to give it away in order to get it. And I started sponsoring my first people when I was 28 days sober. And when I, when I called my sponsor and said, what do I do? He said, you know, you just do what I've done with you. And remember that if they're sick enough to ask you for help, you can't hurt them. You can't hurt them. All we're doing is just being a vehicle, being a change, passing this message on, just saying, hey, look, I had a problem. I used to be like this. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop using. I couldn't stop lying. I couldn't stay out of jail. And then I met somebody that didn't live like that anymore. And all they did was they asked for help from whatever it was that created us, that, uh, that they went out and made restitution, and that they tried to be helpful to others. So that's our little uh, uh, thing about the way that sponsorship actually, the, the history of it. And now... My friend Bill is going to go through and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of after AA started to get rolling because one of the things that happened was is they found out that drunks were okay hanging out with the nice people and all that stuff, but they had a real difficult time with it. So they, uh, they started having meetings of their own and later on it became what we call Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill, alcoholic. Great stuff. Um, after we do this, we're going to take a little break. Uh, <clears throat> you hear a lot of things in AA, and, and one of the things you hear is this different than the phrase we're using, is you've got to give it away to keep it. Well, we really think that you've got to give it away to even get it. And what's the it? What's, what's the program? And if you really study the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things you come to realize is that the big book, as they put it together, was a sales tool. It was a promo thing. They threw this thing out there, and they're trying to recruit people. They're, these guys, you've got to stop and think about this. You had Bill Wilson, the failed stock speculator. He wasn't a broker. He was a speculator. 
You didn't have a broker's license. Uh, you had uh, Hank Parkhurst, the used car salesman. <laughs> you know, they formed a company selling car wax that never sold any car wax, and they produced fake stock certificates to try to get money to publish the book, which they later had to pay all that money back to all those people that put money up to it. And then the third guy was Bill D., who was a lawyer, of course, and uh, ran for public office and lost. So this is who our founders were. These guys were promoters. Were they lit up? Did something happen to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. They all had had these profound spiritual experiences. So they used the skills that they had, and they came out with this book. Now, many of you have probably heard uh, Chapter 5 prior to the editing where there was no suggestions, there was none of this stuff, and it was you will do this and you will do that. And then probably because the light shone down on them and God came to them and said, no, no, no. They passed this around. They said the first hundred people, there were only 77. They lied to us up front. Okay? And they passed it around and these guys began to edit it and they said, look, if we tell it like it really is, they'll run screaming down the street. We'll never get any letters. So we need to soften the approach. So they came out with the big book that we all know and love now, and it's all suggestions, and it's real easy and soft and kind of touchy-feely. In 1940 or 41, depending upon who you're reading uh, about this document, uh, Bob Smith came up with this Akron manual. And at that time, you had guys, this was right after the book had come out, but before the real onslaught of people, before the Jack Alexander article and stuff, before people really started flooding into AA. They had guys that were traveling around the country, uh, traveling salesmen that said, look, I'm going to Atlanta. We all know what happens in Atlanta. And, uh, and I'm a little worried, what should I do? How, what do I do? How do I carry this message? And they had questions, practical questions. What should I do? First, second, third, fourth. So a bunch of the boys got together and they came up with this Akron manual. And this was kind of an inside document. This wasn't something they were handing out to people. This was just for themselves. This is a how-to manual. And I think, I'm pretty sure, that this is exactly what they were actually doing and how they were actually talking compared to what came out in the big book. So I'm just going to read a few excerpts. Now, I'm not proposing that we go back to this. But when you hear people talk about we need to go back to the basics, back to how this is what was really going on. You tell me if you would like to go back to this. Now, some of it's kind of attractive. Some of it you'd really love to tell to people, you know. But the other parts that are kind of iffy. It says here, first off, explain that we are not in the business of sobering up drunks merely to have them go on another bender. Explain that our aim is total and permanent sobriety. Not one time in this document does it say one day at a time. It doesn't even allude to it. Definition of an Alcoholic Anonymous. An Alcoholic Anonymous is an alcoholic who through application of and adherence to the rules laid down by the organization has completely forsworn the use of any and all alcoholic beverages. The moment he wittingly drinks so much as a drop of beer, wine, spirits, or any other alcoholic drink, he automatically loses all status as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're out. 
AA is not interested in sobering up drunks who are not sincere in their desire to remain completely sober for all time. This is a rather large commitment. <laughs> to the newcomer, it is your life. It is your choice. If you are not completely convinced to your own satisfaction that you are an alcoholic, that your life has become unmanageable, if you are not ready to part with alcohol forever, it would be better for all concerned if you discontinued reading this and give up the idea of becoming a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. No losers here. A word to the sponsor. You must fulfill all pledges you make to him, either tangible or intangible. If you cannot fulfill a promise, do not make it. If you, ha you have in your hands the most valuable property in the world, the future of a fellow man. Treat his life as carefully as you would your own. You are literally responsible for his life. Really? Whoa. Alcoholics Anonymous is 100% effective for those who faithfully follow the rules. It is those who try to cut corners who find themselves back in their old drunken state. Rules. Yeah, no loopholes. You can't go to Atlanta. Before long, we're going to have an Atlanta thing going here, don't we? Before long, you will have a new thrill. The thrill of helping someone else. There is no greater satisfaction in the world than watching the progress of a new Alcoholic Anonymous. No whiskey in the world can give you this thrill. Above all, remember this. Keep the rules in mind. As long as you follow them, you are on firm ground, but the least deviation and you are vulnerable. As a new member, remember that you are one of the most important cogs in the machinery of AA. Without the work of the new member, AA could not have grown as it has. You will bring into this work a fresh enthusiasm, the zeal of a crusader. You will want everyone to share with you the blessings of this new life. You will be tireless in your efforts to help others, and it is a splendid enthusiasm. Cherish it as long as you can. I think that's the engine that really drove these guys. I mean, just the thrill of doing the work. I mean, just doing it. You know, the outcomes were almost irrelevant. It was a matter of just having that kind of zeal. You can imagine what they felt like. I mean, Wilson never got another job, ever. He just, like, floated around from, like, couch to couch to couch with his poor wife. He never went back to Wall Street in any significant level. He just did AA for the rest of his life. For you, you are ready to sponsor some other poor alcoholic who is desperately in, need, desperately in need of health, both human and divine. So God bless you and keep you. Now here's my favorite one in this thing. You aren't very important in this world. If you lose your job, someone better will replace you. If you die, your wife will mourn briefly and then remarry. Your children will grow up, and you will be but a memory. In the last analysis, you are the only one who benefits by your sobriety. Seek to cultivate humility. Remember that cockiness leads to a speedy fall. Yeah. So they were having issues already, you know. Medical men will tell you that alcoholics are alike in at least one respect. They are emotionally immature. No. In other words, alcoholics have not learned to think like adults. 
1940. At meetings, don't criticize the leader. He has his own problems and is doing his best to solve them. Help him along by standing up and saying a few words. He will appreciate your kindness and thoughtfulness. Already, they were pissing and moaning about the meetings and how they were being run. All five of them. You know? <clears throat> Don't criticize the methods of others. Strangely enough, you may change your own ideas as you become older in sobriety. Remember, there are a dozen roads from New York to Chicago, but they all land in Chicago. How soon you will be cured of a desire to drink is another matter. That depends entirely upon how quickly you can succeed in changing your fundamental outlook on life. For as your outlook changes for the better, desire will become less pronounced until it disappears almost entirely. It may be weeks or it may be months. Your sincerity and your capacity for working with others on the AA program will determine the length of time. They don't talk about doing another inventory, making more amends. They talk about your ability, your desire, your capacity for working with others as the real key, the ultimate key. Alcoholics Anonymous is based on a set of laws known as the 12 steps. Years of experience, years, four or five years of experience have definitely proved that those who live up to these rules remain sober. Those who gloss over or ignore any one rule are in constant danger of returning to a life of drunkenness. Thousands of words could be written on each rule. Lack of space prevents, so they are merely listed here. It is suggested that they be explained by the sponsor. If he cannot explain them, he should provide someone who can. The Aquin Manual. Um, we're going to be quoting from stuff like that in these overheads, and I've got a list here, an email list, if you'd like to get copies of this stuff that we're talking about, some of the documents and some other things. Sign up, please print, so I can read the damn thing. And I know that down here in the south there's a different form of writing that happens. You know, I have difficulty in deciphering this, you know, so... Take care with it and uh, sign the list, and we will be happy to send you copies of this stuff. Let's take a break. Hmm? Yeah.